Thank you so much for the opportunity to teach your word. Um, I thank you that Jesus broke down barriers to seek out this woman because uh, she represents so many of us uh, who feel like we're on the outside looking in and uh, we're not part of the accepted group. And yet Jesus went way out of his way to reach the woman at the well. We don't even know her name, but uh, she was important to you and you sent your son to her. And I believe each one of us is important to you as well. Um, you send your spirit who draws us to you and I pray that each person that is within uh, the hearing of my voice will pay attention to your word. So um, open this up to us in Jesus' name, amen. But we've gone over this text a couple of times now, but um, I don't know, I've gone back and forth. So the first Sunday that we covered it, this is Sunday before last, I did go verse by verse, pretty much did what I would do on a Wednesday. I left out some detail. This last Sunday, I really, um, I had this purpose in mind of using the story uh, as a way to help us understand this concept of being filled, right? All right. Uh, Jesus had just told the woman that if she were to ask him for water, he'd give her living water, and it would become in her this spring, uh, this fountain, right, gushing up to eternal life. And so that coupled with the idea coming from the skit Sunday morning or the Reader's Theater Sunday morning about the cup caused me to think about that. And then, you know, she engages Jesus in that conversation about where they should worship and Jesus opens up the purpose of God, which was demonstrated in his talking to her that it was no longer gonna be about the Jews in Jerusalem, not just a specific special group of people that only worshiped in a specific special way in one location, but that God was gonna open everything up to everybody. God is spirit, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, uh, you'll worship God neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And so that's why here we are on the corner of 6th and Main in downtown Garland, worshiping the Lord. Maybe you're listening on the podcast or you'll pay attention to one of the streams now or later and you can worship there as well. Um, but um, I wanna go back and kind of fill in some details. Uh, so we're, we're gonna zoom through this, but my purpose is to go all the way through um, John 4, 1 through, uh, I think it's about 41, 42, okay? So I'm not gonna read all that. I'm gonna read section by section. I'm gonna make a few comments uh, to fill in the details. And then when we hit the point where we haven't covered uh, regarding Jesus and the woman at the well, then we'll slow down, all right? So uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So then when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, rather his disciples were, then he left Judea and went away again to Galilee. So again, I've laid this out in your mind before. Judea is south, Samaria is in the middle, Galilee is in the north, okay? And um, the Jordan River, runs on the east side, right along the border, and then you have the Mediterranean that is on the west side all the way out at the coast, right? Okay, so Jesus is gonna go back up to Galilee. It's a three days journey 
to, according to Josephus, to go from Judea to Galilee. Now, as I've mentioned a couple of times, the Jews often circumvented Samaria altogether and went on the east side of the Jordan River, went up through Perea and the Decapolis, and then came over right as they were getting to the Sea of Galilee, they came across on the other side, okay? That would take even longer. So, uh, we see that Jesus chose to take the route through Samaria. Um, why did he leave Judea? He was seeking to avoid conflict with the religious establishment, which is often just termed the Jews in John. This is not a racial or even an ethnic designation. It's a religious designation. So Jesus is seeking to avoid conflict with the religious establishment. Um, now this time it's identified with the Pharisees, right? It says, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard, right? Well, it wasn't yet time. His hour had not yet come. And so if he were to remain there, then it would have escalated this conflict, which would push them to that eventuality, which eventually was they would have him executed, right? And this does happen at the end, but his hour had not yet come. And we're going to hear him say this a number of times throughout the Gospel of John. However, um, Jesus chose to avoid that conflict. That's wise for many of us, right? He was choosing to avoid a conflict with religious people. That's not a bad idea for you either, okay? Hey, you know, you've got even people that claim to be Christians, even well-meaning Christians, who just, they just can't stop arguing and fighting with everybody about everything. They're never happy about anything, you know? And here's this revival that was taking place uh, um, in, uh, in Kentucky and uh, at Asbury University. And there were even people that were picking, you know, uh, fights over that. It's just people just can't, they just can't be happy. They, they just can't be happy. So your best bet is avoid conflict with those people, right? It's, it's not in our best interest to get into arguments with the religious people, right? Um, they have all of their, you know, their special interests and, you know, they've got their, uh, their particular agendas, right? And they're going to push that. And, you know, best to just go where the people want to hear the gospel, spend time with people that are uh, receptive to you and to the message, right? So Jesus goes back to Galilee. Uh, now, John 4 through 14. And he had to pass through Samaria. As I've told you before, I think that that wasn't just a uh, geographic necessity, Jesus chose to pass through Samaria because he was going to meet with this woman. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. As we said before, Sychar may be associated with the city of Shechem, which is uh, a very ancient city, or it could be a town that is just a little, uh, little bit away from that. The parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph is a parcel of land that Jacob actually purchased long before Israel came into the promised land, okay? Hundreds of years after Jacob, this is, you know, Jacob has a son named Joseph. Joseph is second in command in Egypt, brings the whole family to Egypt, right? At this point, it's a family, an extended family of 70 people. That balloons into a nation of perhaps a million or more people, um, after 400 years in Egypt and slavery and so forth, they come out of Egypt. We did this all last year where I talked about uh, the, you know, the journey through the desert and what Moses dealt with concerning the people. 
And then eventually, you know, all of the adults died out and uh, the, uh, even Moses died. And then Joshua led the people into the promised land and took the promised land. Well, long before that, back with Jacob, Jacob bought a piece of land. And when he came to Egypt uh, under his son Joseph, he, he gave that piece of land or willed it to Joseph. Well, Joseph's two sons were Ephraim and Manasseh, okay? They were the ones that got the allotment that would have gone to Joseph. He got a double portion, in other words. And so that property was already, uh, had already belonged to Joseph and his descendants before they took the, the land, okay? Um, Jacob's well was there. This isn't, the, the well is not mentioned in scripture, but it was a, it's an ancient well. It's still there today. So Jesus, tired from his journey, was just sitting by the well. I love that. Just sitting by the well. Do you ever just chill? He's just out there by himself. He's just sitting there. Now, God is never just doing anything. He's always got a purpose, right? But it's encouraging to know that Jesus was tired. You get tired. It was encouraging to know that he could relax, right? It was about the sixth hour. As I mentioned, I believe previously, um, and this becomes a bigger deal when we get to the passion narrative in John chapter 19. But there is somewhat of a debate as to whether John follows Roman time or whether John follows um, Jewish time, okay? Roman time is like ours, right? You got midnight, you know, and you got your a.m. that starts at midnight, go all the way through noon, and then you start p.m. Make sense? Okay? So, um, if this is Roman time, we're talking this is 6 p.m. Most interpreters think that John is using uh, Jewish time, which means that the day starts at 6 a.m., right? The daylight hours, okay? And then evening starts at 6 p.m., but the next day starts at 6 p.m. Um, I think there's a very good possibility that John is using Roman time, but either way, as we're gonna see, this woman who comes to the well is coming there at a time or at this well, at, at a place that would be unusual for her, for her. So this is either noon or 6 p.m. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. You need to understand something. Jesus had already broken down some barriers, obviously, because there was such animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans that Jews wouldn't even eat the food that Samaritans made. So in other words, going into a Samaritan town to buy food was a pretty significant uh, deal, right? They, they wouldn't drink out of a vessel that Samaritans had handled. They wouldn't eat bread that Samaritan hands had made. They might have been willing to purchase like fruit or something like that because the Samaritans hadn't made it. But that the disciples were willing to do this is a clear indicator that some serious barriers were, were coming down. So the Samaritan woman said to him, and as I mentioned two weeks ago, this is, shows 
how she feels, right? How is it that you, that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? And then the parenthetical, the explanation here, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, which indicates two things. First of all, John is not written to the Jewish people. It's written to Gentiles. It's written to people and for people that don't live anywhere near the Holy Land, okay? Because he has these explanatories all throughout. Like whenever there's a, a, an Aramaic phrase, a Jewish word that's used, then he always explains it, right? And so here he's explaining for people, anybody that lived in what, you know, what we now know as Israel would have understood this. They wouldn't have needed that explanation, okay? So this is one of those indicators that, um, you know, as to who John's audience, who his target audience was. Jesus replied to her, if you knew the gift of God, and by the way, that term is used to refer to the Holy Spirit, and that term, the gift of God, is used to refer to eternal life. Uh, Jesus, in the prologue, is already, the prologue has already pointed out that Jesus is the light of life, right? He brings the light of life into the world. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This living water here represents the Holy Spirit. This is why I just, I keep, I, I, I don't know how much harder I can preach on this. I really don't. You can't do Christianity by yourself. It's not intended to be done in the flesh. You have to have the Holy Spirit. You have to. It's not an option. It's essential. That's the down payment on eternal life. When we say, ah, I pray to receive Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit that you're receiving. And then you need to open yourself up to be filled with the Spirit daily. The Spirit brings life, right? Um, she said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. This well was 100 feet deep. That's a lot of rope, <laughs> by the way. The well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Now, living water to her just concretely would have meant running water, okay? Uh, a spring that bubbles up, that would have been living water, okay? She didn't understand the metaphor here or the figure of speech that he was using. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Well, stop for a moment. The Samaritans were not actually related to Jacob. It is possible that there were some people that were left over in the land after the Assyrians came in, but I mentioned this Sunday morning. In 722 BC, the Lord allowed the Assyrians to come in and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom, 10 tribes, included this area where Galilee is. The Assyrians came in and they took over that land and then they deported all of the residents, right? And they deported them back east, essentially. And then they imported a bunch of people. Uh, I copied that text down here uh, that, uh, that covers that, uh, the names of the peoples that were imported. So there was a lot of history with these folks in the land and them trying to normalize that land as their own land and what they did for that. And again, I'm going to cover that in just a minute. But I just wanted to pause and say, really, this was a misnomer. They were not related to Jacob. 
they had kind of, call it cultural appropriation. <laughs> Isn't that a big statement today? Like, you know, if you do anything, uh, you know, let's, let's say, uh, oh, I've seen this happen, you know, uh, if uh, a gringo like me wears a sombrero, that's cultural appropriation, okay? You know, because I am not of Mexican heritage. Uh, apparently, you know, this is, this is a thing. Well, this would really be very similar to that, I will say. I, I won't go into further details here. Um, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Well, of course he is. He's Jesus. He's the son of God, and he's going to introduce himself as such very shortly. Jesus answered her. He doesn't even enter into the, into the conflict. He doesn't even enter into it. Again, he avoided conflict with the Pharisees. Now, he's not always going to avoid conflict with the Pharisees. He gets on to them, but they, he's called to do that. I'm not saying that you should always avoid conflict. There are times when you have to speak the truth regardless of how it is received, right? But on the whole, we should try to do that. He avoids this, this racial conflict. He's trying to show this woman that he came to bring her life, right? He came to show concern for her and bring her the, the life that God offers to those who will believe in him. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give, again, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the water he will give, shall never be thirsty, and this is where our church gets its name, but the water I will give him will become in him a fountain of water, a well of water, springing up to eternal life, life well, okay? Um, so you become a channel of life, a channel of blessing to other people, all right? Let me find some details that I didn't cover as I was just going through that. Okay, here we go. Um, the Samaritans, as I said, were descended from the peoples that Assyria imported into the land after their conquest and deportation of Israel in 722 BC. Here's a, a list of those peoples. This is 2 Kings 17.24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. Therefore, the residents in Jesus' day were not actually the descendants of Jacob or Joseph, even if they, even if they claimed this. I may have read this quote already, I don't remember. Uh, this is from uh, Beasley Murray in the Word Biblical Commentary. The Samaritans nevertheless viewed themselves as true Israel and heirs of the promises of God to Israel and their version of the Pentateuch, they wrote their own version of the first five books of the Bible. They didn't even have, they're kind of like Jehovah's Witnesses. They had their own Bible. And Jehovah's Witnesses have their own translation of the Bible, okay? Or maybe even closer to Mormons who have their own, you know, Book of Mormon and Doctrine of the Covenants and so forth. They wanted to have a book that validated their claims. This is, happens all the time, okay? Uh, they need an inspired book that says, you are the people. You're the ones God has chosen, okay? So Beasley Murray, the, the Samaritans nevertheless viewed themselves as true Israel and heirs of the promises of God to Israel and their version of the Pentateuch as the original one direct from Moses. So from this, we can understand the animosity between the Jews and Samaritans. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it would have been barriers already being broken down. 
because the disciples left Jesus there uh, to go into town and get food. This is what William Barclay says about that. His disciples went on ahead to buy some food in the Samaritan town. Something must have been beginning to happen to them. Before they had met Jesus, it is entirely unlikely that they would have even thought of buying food in any Samaritan town. Little by little, perhaps even unconsciously, Barclay writes, the barriers were going down, right? I believe that Jesus sent them all into town, okay? They needed food, but he knew the woman was coming. I believe this was a divine appointment. You and I need to be looking for divine appointments, right? The Lord will put people in your path to have a conversation with about him. And this is why I think that Jesus came. He wanted to speak to the woman alone. The woman would likely have been quite intimidated by a group of men gathered around the well. The conversation would become uncomfortable as you know, I mentioned this Sunday, uh, this last Sunday, and Jesus points out that she's had five husbands and she's living with a guy right now. Um, yeah, that would get uncomfortable with a bunch of dudes standing around. Um, it is possible that John, that is the gospel writer John, was there since this account is like that of an eyewitness. If so, he would have remained unobtrusive. It is often better to share the gospel with someone one-on-one, right? If you're going to share your testimony, you're going to share Jesus, sit down with someone and share one-on-one. Not by text, not by email. I'm just telling you, I'm not saying you can't do that, but I'm saying it's better to have a face-to-face, real, one-on-one conversation with somebody. That's what Jesus did. You have to meet with Jesus by yourself. Even if you come to faith in a church, and I'm toying with the possibility that on Easter Sunday, I'm just going to share my testimony. Because although March 26th is the actual date that I came to faith in Jesus, it was Easter Sunday that year. So I go back and forth between observing Easter Sunday as my rebirth day and March 26th. So I may well do that. Well, I had prayed to receive Christ many times prior to that, right? In church, but it's always, it's you talking to the Lord yourself. You don't come to Jesus in a group, okay? You come to Jesus on your own, one-on-one. Jesus is demonstrating that with this woman. That's why we begin by calling upon Jesus in prayer, and he'll meet you in your heart, okay? Um, so let's look at this. Uh, here's uh, some interesting information about the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, to show you what a barrier Jesus was breaking down to even talk to this woman, and even further to ask her for a drink, which means he would be drinking out of her vessel. Uh, listen to this from William Barclay. In time there came in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and so this is after the return of uh, the Jews to um, Israel. So I told you 722 BC, the northern kingdom is taken over by the Assyrians, and those people are deported. In 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and do the exact same thing in the south to Judah. Okay, Judah and Um, Benjamin are the southern two tribes, okay? They take them captive, but rather than um, the the Jewish people, as they became to be known, um, losing their identity by intermarrying in Babylon, they stayed together 
And then after 70 years, they moved back and they rebuilt Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. So here is Barclay talking about that. In time, there came in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and the exiles returned to Jerusalem by the grace of the Persian king, that's Cyrus. Their immediate task was to repair and rebuild the shattered temple. The Samaritans came and offered their help in this sacred task. Well, they weren't just worshiping Yahweh. The Samaritans also worshiped their own gods, right? Or the people that came to be called Samaritans. They worshiped their own gods, which they imported from all of these different places. So this is called syncretism. When you take your own religion and you mix it up with another religion, that's syncretism, okay? Um, Catholics have done this for hundreds and hundreds of years. They would move into a new area and Catholicism, as it expressed itself in that area, would syncretize with the local religious views and that's why you have so many strange practices uh, among Catholics. Now, they're not alone. It's just Catholicism is huge, and uh, you know, it's, but this has been going on forever. So this syncretism was going on. Um, they were contemptuously told that their help was not wanted. They had lost their Jewish heritage, and they had no right to share in the rebuilding of the house of God. Smarting under this repulse, they turned bitterly against the Jews of Jerusalem, it was about 450 BC when that quarrel took place, and it was bitter as ever in the days of Jesus. So that's 450 years, 480 years before Jesus, and it's still a bitter conflict. Now, Barclay continues. It had been further embittered when the renegade Jew Manasseh married a daughter of the Samaritan Sanballat and proceeded to found a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. So I told you about that Sunday. Okay, they built their own little temple on Mount Gerizim, okay, which was in the center of the Samaritan territory. Still later in the Maccabean days in 129 BC, I mentioned this Sunday as well, John Hyrcanus, the Jewish general and leader, led an attack against Samaria and sacked and destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. It was, already, it was still destroyed in Jesus' day. It hadn't been rebuilt. Between Jews and Samaritans, there was an embittered hatred. The Jews contemptuously called them Kuthites or Kuthians after one of the peoples whom the Assyrians had settled there. The Jewish rabbis said, quote, let no man eat of the bread of the Kuthians for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. Woo. Is Jesus breaking down a barrier? He's breaking down a barrier. Um, the Bible knowledge commentary says this, about Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. A rabbinic law of AD 66, which would have been after Jesus, but it reflects the opinion that had been going on all along, stated that Samaritan women were, were considered as continually menstruating and thus unclean. Therefore, a Jew who drank from a Samaritan woman's vessel would become ceremonially unclean. And then, uh, do you know the, the section of books in the Catholic Bible called the Apocrypha? Also uh, accepted by um, Anglicans and Episcopalians. It's in the middle of their Bible, okay? These books were not accepted as inspired by the Jewish people. They've never been accepted as inspired uh, by um, people who we would call Protestants, okay? 
Well, I can't say that entirely because, as I said, uh, Episcopalians and Anglicans do accept them. But nonetheless, these are not inspired books, but they are historical in nature. Okay, They have historical value. So in one of those apocryphal books, which were written in the intertestamental period, by the way, okay, the period between the two testaments, the period that we're referring to here when we talk about John Hyrcanus destroying the temple on Mount Gerizim, that's the intertestamental period. Okay, There is a book that is known as Sirach. And in Sirach 50, 25, and 26, 50, 25, and 26, yes, it states this. Two nations my soul detests, and the third is not even a people. Those two who live in Seir, that would be the Edomites, and the Philistines, and the foolish people that live in Shechem. That would be, of course, the Samaritans. Um, Peter, in the book of Acts, after his encounter with Cornelius, okay, Cornelius is the first Gentile convert, right? He's the the uh, the Roman soldier who came to faith. He, uh, excuse me, Peter is preaching to, Corn- to Cornelius and his family, and he says this. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So, are there people that you don't want to have anything to do with? Those people. I'm not talking about, you know, people that have done you wrong or annoy you or whatever. I'm talking about the things that get talked about every day in our country. Racism, you know, all these isms. Are there people like that for you? You're like, no, 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 I'm not racist. I'm not like that at all. But are there people that you avoid, that you won't talk to, that you don't want to have anything to do with? Jesus broke down all those barriers, man. Um... Okay, see, let's skip. I'm just trying to fill in the gaps because we've talked about a lot of this. Um, okay, let's, let's move on to the next section here. So Jesus has offered her this living water. He's told her that it will become in her this spring of water or this fountain bubbling up to everlasting life. She says, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw water. She didn't understand what he was talking about yet. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Again, I've covered this Sunday. That sounds mean, but he had a purpose. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This which you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Now Sunday, I took, I made the case that the Samaritans didn't believe in prophets except the one prophet that would come that Moses spoke of, who would explain everything to them, which apparently many of them had agreed was the same as Messiah, okay? The prophet that Moses spoke of that would come and would explain everything, the prophet like me, as Moses called him, and Messiah, they're the same thing to some of these folks. So she comes from a a group of people that believe that, but the idea as to whether she believed in prophets, um, it would be going against what Samaritans typically 
would believe. However, I think when Jesus says to his disciples in just a moment, if we get there, that they've entered into a ministry that was started by others, this is likely referring to work that perhaps even John the Baptist has done. So um, I pointed out on the map when we brought the map up that Anon and Salim, that's where it says in John chapter 3 that we talked about last week in here, okay? It says that, that John had moved um, north along the Jordan River to this place, the, this region near Anon and Salim. Well, that was up toward Galilee and very close to Samaria. So it stands to reason that John's preaching was drawing Gentiles in, that it would have drawn Samaritans in. So they may have already been coming to John and hearing his preaching and maybe even have been baptized by John. So maybe some of them had come to believe that there were prophets. So I'm not going to be uh, cynical and say that she could not have thought he was a prophet. If she said, she says this here, okay, I perceive you are a prophet, it, this could be sarcasm. And there are two different, it's interesting because there are, there are two different uh, dramatizations of this, one of which I showed you two weeks ago from the Chosen uh, television series, okay? And there, uh, Dallas Jenkins takes the, the sarcastic line because you can see, well, as I said Sunday, she probably had quite a reputation, right? The reason she's going, by the way, this well is upwards. I, I keep reading different texts that, that say that it's this distance or that distance. It's between a half a mile and a mile from where she lived. I want you to consider walking even half a mile to get a bunch of water. Water's heavy, okay? You know, you get a five-gallon jug and carry it a half a mile. She's getting this water. She's probably got two jugs. She's got a Likely she's got a pole, it's got two jugs, and she's going to carry it on her shoulder full all the way back. Why is she doing that? Well, she's probably trying to avoid the women in town. She's trying to avoid their wagging tongues and their gossip and their rejection. So she had a reputation. However, she doesn't know Jesus. He's a Jew. If he would have been anywhere near the town, she would have known that. So I, I don't know. I'm back and forth as to whether she's convinced he's a prophet yet or not, Okay but she continues to engage him in conversation. I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, okay? They're standing next to Mount Gerizim. That's Jacob's well is at an intersection of two roads and Mount Gerizim is right there, okay? Yet you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. So once again, she, she highlighted the racial conflict. You're a Jew. Right? She, she highlighted the, the conflict between men and women, and I'm a woman, a Samaritan woman. And Jesus bypassed that and continued to love on her, continued to talk to her. Now, she wants to get him into a religious conflict. He avoided the racial conflict. Now she wants to bring him into the religious conflict. Well, he doesn't simply avoid it by not talking religion, because religion also embraces biblical truth that also embraces a relationship with God, okay? Um, but he doesn't allow himself to be drawn into the conflict, right? 
Immediately, he says, Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So he's saying the barrier is going to be broken down. Believe me, woman, I'm bringing you some good news. It's not about the Jews. It's not about the Samaritans. It's not about your temple or our temple. He says, a time in co- that time is coming when you will worship Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Then he, you know, he tells the truth. You, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews and he is the salvation that is from the Jews. But a time is coming and even now has arrived when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Friends, Jesus is demonstrating that right here. God seeks people to be his worshipers. Jesus sought this woman out. You think you're seeking God. God's knocking on your door, okay? A time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. We could do a whole session on that. God is not a material being. God is not a a physical being, right? God is a spiritual being. That's how he can be omnipresent, okay? He is above and beyond our spatio-temporal existence. So when we pray to God, you can't think of an old man sitting in a rocking chair. That's not God. That's some twisted idea of God. God's not some old man with a white beard. He's not some old white man in a white beard. He's not a man at all. He became a man in Jesus. And Jesus is still the God man. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born from above. You have to be born from God. You have to be born by the spirit. Because if your spirit is not reborn, you can't worship God. You can go through rituals, but it's not real worship. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. Again, there's an explanation. Messiah, Mashiach, is a Jewish word, an Aramaic word, okay? Christos is the Greek, means chosen one. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, this is so amazing, I am he, the one speaking to you. Jesus never said that to anybody else, never. He demonstrated to his people, the Jewish people, by his miraculous signs and by his words, and he let them try to look at the scripture and look at his fulfillment and make up their own mind. But this woman is only going to have one encounter with Jesus, and that's this encounter. And she says, man, we're looking for Messiah. And Jesus says, look no further. That's awesome. This is a high, this is a high honor. This is a great privilege that he offers to her. Okay. So this idea, um, of going and calling your husband, I, I really got into this on Sunday, but it might seem cruel, but Jesus is trying to point to what is separating her from 
community and communion with God, right? Um, where has she been putting her, her trust and her hope? In men. Ladies, we ain't worth it, right? Only Jesus is worth it. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether you marry him or you don't marry him, you can go from guy to guy to guy to guy to guy to guy, and it's not gonna fulfill you. And men, the same thing. Gotta have a girl, gotta have a girl, gotta have a girl, gotta have a girl. I watched these teenagers when I was a youth minister, and I mean, my goodness, you just, you had young men who were just, they didn't know what to do with themselves, they didn't have a girlfriend. Gotta, gotta have a man, gotta have a girl, gotta, no, you need Jesus, man, and you need his will for you, that's what you need. That's what Jesus is trying to help this woman to understand, right? Um, I talked about the conflict between uh, the two temples. Um, here's a passage of scripture. Jesus said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus doesn't want to enter into the religious conflict, but he's going to tell her the truth. Listen to what the apostle Paul said in Romans 9, 4 through 5. Who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and daughters, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Paul lifted high his people, even though they were rejecting him. Jesus was rejected by his people because God chose these people to bring salvation into the world. Jesus affirms the purpose of the Jewish people to bring salvation, and Jesus is the Savior. He's the seed of Abraham to which the covenant of circumcision pointed and in whom it is fulfilled. He is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. That's why there's no more temple and no more sacrifices being offered. Jesus is the final sacrifice, the real sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God that made atonement for sin with his own blood. He's the fulfillment of the law, making the Mosaic covenant obsolete. Listen to what uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We follow Jesus and we live by the law of love and that fulfills the law. Um, then, uh, you know, he tells her that a time is coming when you worship the Father, uh, neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem, a time is coming, even now has arrived. Jesus has brought that. He's the harbinger of this new time when the worship worshipers will worship Father, the Father in spirit and in truth. There's no more temple, temple building, nor does it have to be rebuilt. We do not go up to Jerusalem to worship. God has come down to each one of us, and the Lord is among us now because we've gathered in his name. Believers are the temple today. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit if you've chosen to put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and receive him into your heart. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, the temple of God and, and the Spirit of God dwells in you or among you. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person for the temple of God is holy and that is what you all are. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God and that you're not your own? For you have been bought for a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Did you notice that the Holy Spirit is central to this? If the Spirit is not living in you, you're not a part of that temple, okay? Um, and then uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, 
Or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said. I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then this, which I did quote when we talked about this previously from 1 Peter 2, 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So sometimes people say, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, you know, the, the, you know, the house of the Lord. Okay. I'm, you know, going to church and they think of the church as being the place where, you know, where God is. God is where we gather. Those of us who have the spirit, when we gather together, then Christ already said that. The kingdom of God is within you or among you, Jesus said in Luke 17, 21. God's kingdom is not isolated to a particular location. God's kingdom is not located in Jerusalem, okay? It's not there or any other city or nation geographically. The kingdom is manifested anywhere believers live and gather. What did Jesus say? Matthew 18, 20, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. Okay? Um, so, he talked about this idea of uh, God being spirit. We've got to worship him in spirit and in truth. And uh, I use the text from Ezekiel 37 and the Valley of Dry Bones on Sunday to talk about or illustrate, really, uh, this idea of spirit and truth. The spirit is the structure. The spirit is the absolute, unchanging word of God, right? And then the spirit is the one who brings that uh, to us and makes it apply to us. Um, right, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking to you. Um, as I indicated earlier, Jesus didn't openly proclaim to be Messiah among the Jewish people, not even to his disciples. He let his actions and words lead his people to come to their own conclusion. I believe that's true for you. He wants you to come to your own conclusion. Okay? Um, consider how he addressed the subject with his disciples. After they'd been following him for more than a year, probably a year and a half, he took them aside, took them out to the countryside all by themselves, and he asked them who they believed he was. First he asked them, who do people say that I am? Oh, you know, some say that you're one of the old prophets that has been raised from the dead. Some say that you're John the Baptist, you know. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? Okay. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He let them make up their own mind. But when they said, yes, you are the Messiah, he said, that's been revealed to you. And he affirmed it. Now, he openly says that. Does she believe? He's told Nicodemus, you need to be reborn. Nicodemus, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. As far as we can tell, Nicodemus walked away without believing, but he was still seeking. And Nicodemus may have come to the point where he believed. Uh, Nicodemus defends Jesus in chapter 7 of John. Nicodemus goes with Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus at the end of the crucifixion. So has he become a disciple? We don't know. But this woman, yeah, she believes. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed 
that he'd been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what are you seeking, lady? Or why are you speaking to her, Jesus? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city. Now, I want you to understand, why was this woman out here in the middle of the day? She didn't want to be around these people. She didn't want to talk to them. She didn't want to hear their tongues wag. There are barriers there. She's ashamed. She's angry, bitter. Who knows what? Right? Definitely isolated. Look at what happens. She left her water pot, went into the city, and said to the people, she's like walking through the city square, hollering out, hey, guys. You know, it's like the Asbury Revival. I showed you guys that little uh, that little uh, mini movie that was created, that little documentary about it. And one of the, uh, the college students that was at the chapel that day um, said that they had stayed behind and prayed, and then he left. And he said he heard, you know, something going on, and he went back, and there were more people there, and they were all praying, and they were praising. And so what did they do? They ran up and down the hallways of their college opening doors and interrupting professors and saying, revival is here. I love it. I love it. This woman is running up and down the streets of the city, and she says, come see a man who told me all things that I've done. They knew the things she had done. She was ashamed of them. But now what she had been ashamed of became her testimony. Wow. Wow. Amen. This is not the Christ, is he? And they believed. These are people that probably wouldn't have listened to her tell them anything, okay? But they were interested. They're like, something happened to this lady. We need to see what's going on. There's a change here. They left the city and were coming to him. So the woman believed, right? Meanwhile, (laughs) meanwhile, I love that. The disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Their heads are just as hard as a concrete wall. I mean, it's amazing how many times when you read in the scripture and they just don't get it. Right? Here's Nicodemus. He's the teacher of Israel. And he just doesn't get it. You know why? Because we're not thinking spiritually. We haven't been reborn. Right? We're still spiritually blind and deaf. Okay? And although these are his disciples and they're following him around and they're trusting in him, they're even believing he's Messiah, they have not been reborn by the Spirit yet. That doesn't happen until the book of Acts. Right? Until Pentecost. So, They don't get it. They're still thinking about physical food. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know anything about. The disciples were saying to one another, "Uh, no one brought him any food, did they? Wow, wow, you just, it's a figure of speech. I mean, stop thinking concretely. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Wow, amen. The disciples were spiritually deaf and blind. They did not understand what Jesus was saying or doing until he explained it. What a change Pentecost made in them. That's when the Holy Spirit came down. That's when they were fully, finally born from above. And the same is true for you, friend. 
Without the Holy Spirit, you're clueless. You're focused on the natural. You're in bondage to the flesh. You're enchanted by the world, deceived by the devil. Only Jesus can set you free and send his spirit to open your eyes and ears of your spirit so that you can understand the things of God. Jesus saying, I have food to eat that you know not of, okay? Jesus saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Doing the work of ministry is exhausting when you try to do it in the flesh, okay? Um, Brittany, who's been going to our church for a long time, uh, got saved in one of Pastor Craig's very, very early uh, youth ministry Bible studies that he was having at your house, as a matter of fact. Uh, she is now the ministry director at The Rock, and so she interviewed me yesterday. I came to Karate Club. I always get there early so that I can practice and um, stay on top of things. And uh, so in between the time I practiced and the time the kids started showing up and Sue shows up to help us as well, uh, she interviewed me and she was, she was asking me questions about you know my relationship to The Rock and the Karate Club and all this other stuff. And it just, I will tell you, th there's so much ministry potential at The Rock, right? It is just a, a mission center. But when I walk in the door, it's exhausting. There's just so much to do, right? Working with people is tiring, right? But when you do that in the spirit, it changes things, right? Ministry in the spirit, it, you can it can, it's still tiring, but it's also nourishing and fulfilling. I, I want, when I, when I preach, uh, and I just really let the Lord take over. When I'm done, I'm tired. I'm tired. I, I don't want to go to 14 parties and fellowships and whatever. When I'm done, I'm done. I'm just, two things exhaust me more than anything I've ever done in my whole life. One of them is sparring. Okay. Put on the gloves and spar for several three minute rounds. I mean, I'm spent. And the other one is preaching, but I love it. That's what I want to do. It's what I want to do. I want to teach. I want to preach. That's what I want to do. I don't want to do other stuff. Um, and that's because it's what I'm called to do. When you do the ministry that God has called you to, then it is like food. It is nourishment, right? This is how we fast, by the way, okay? When you're fasting in accordance with God's call to fast, then he supplies your need, Right? He helps you get through it. He carries you through it because that's your ministry at that point in time. Do the will of God and you will be fed like doing nothing else. You don't want this or that. You want God's will in your life. Amen? All right. Well, that's it. That's the end of the woman at the well story. And so we will press on at the end of chapter four next Wednesday. I don't know what I'm going to talk about Sunday, but probably we'll focus on the triumphal entry.